Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, and we will read through verse 15. May the Lord add His blessing to His holy scriptures this evening. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem and were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair and with a girdle of a skin about his loins. And he did eat locusts and wild honey and preached, saying, There cometh one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. Straightway, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens open and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. <clears throat> and immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered unto him. Now, after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye, and believe the gospel. Amen. May God be pleased to bless this reading of His Word. May we hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Mark's account of the life of Jesus Christ begins with this simple introduction. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then follows 16 chapters of Christ's person and work. This is directly connected to verse 2. As it is written. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As it is written. Now what we're saying right out of the chute with Mark is that this whole issue of the gospel is something that is clearly set forth in the Old Testament scriptures. The gospel, while it comes to its most glorious Revelation in the person and work of Jesus Christ was prophesied by the prophets of old. God's Messiah and His great kingdom are prophesied throughout the Old Testament, which is why Mark continues in verse 2, as it is written in the prophets, and then quotes from the Old Testament Scriptures. <clears throat> while this is the New Covenant... It is that which the Old Covenant 
points to over and over and over again. And it is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. So in this we want to see the glorious unity of Scripture and realize that what is set forth before us as the Gospel is what the prophets of old gave as revelation to God's people. Yes, in types and shadows. But it was there nonetheless. As it is written in the prophets. Behold, I send my messenger before thy face. And this speaks to us of John. We can elaborate and take some time and go over to the Gospel of John and look at John the Baptist a little bit more there, but we don't have time in such a review as we have this evening. But God's great kingdom and the Gospel of Christ are therefore intimately united. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, as it is written in the prophets, and Jesus Christ's theme underlying everything that He preached was the kingdom of God. We see it in verse 14. Now, after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching what? The gospel of the kingdom of God. Very often today in the preaching of the gospel, as we're going to see, this aspect of the kingdom is entirely left out. The whole thing is narrowed down to a man-centered plea for a decision. Whereas the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ certainly encompasses far more than that truncated view of the gospel. The gospel of the kingdom is about God, His eternal purpose, saving sinners under what? To bring them into His glorious kingdom where they might rule and reign with Him for all eternity. This is the theme both of the Old Testament, prophesied in types and shadows, fulfilled in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is a present aspect of that kingdom that came when the Lord Jesus came preaching and teaching. And there will be a future aspect of the kingdom when it comes to its glorious consummation. So this idea of the gospel and the kingdom go together. And we see it at the beginning of Mark's gospel, Matthew's gospel as well. Even think of the dialogue that Jesus Christ had with Nicodemus. Except a man be born again, he cannot, what? Enter or see the kingdom of God. The kingdom and the gospel are intimately related. Now this explains, as I said, Mark's statement in verse 14. So, Mark unfolds for us in his gospel <clears throat> 16 chapters regarding the gospel of the kingdom. All these things ultimately are related. But that's in its broad view. Of course, the gospel is a message that we can, if you will let me use these words, and I trust we'll understand them, narrow them to certain essentials. We cannot take bits and pieces out of the Scripture and put them away, and this is not what I'm advocating. But what I am saying is that what is given to us in the fullness of Matthew and in Mark and Luke and John, <clears throat> we can bring certain heads together and see the main themes of preaching the gospel, this glorious gospel of God's kingdom. 
through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, <clears throat> in these 16 chapters, we read of Jesus conquering the powers of darkness and disease. We see His relationship with His disciples, with His family, with His enemies, the people of Israel, with His Heavenly Father, and the Holy Ghost. And His matchless triumph over uh, sin, death, and hell by His crucifixion and resurrection. Now Mark concludes his uh, account of Christ's life with the command that Jesus gave to preach the gospel to every creature. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, preach the gospel to every creature. Mark begins and he ends with the gospel. Now we have to ask ourselves a very important question. What is that gospel that must be preached to every creature? And it is here that I fear that there is much, much confusion in modern, culturized American religion. What does it mean to preach the gospel? Well, <clears throat> the title of our message this evening is The Gospel of the Kingdom of God. And we want to consider it under three heads. <clears throat> Number one, Christ's command to repent. Christ's command to believe. And Christ's gospel. Christ's command to repent. Christ's command to believe and Christ's gospel. And these all come directly from verse 15. As we see this prologue unfold, John comes on the scene preparing the way for, great, for the great and glorious one coming after him. How does he prepare the people of Israel? He commands them to repent and be baptized for the remission of of sins. And then <clears throat> we see that there is a tremendous response in verse 5 to this preaching. He comes before Israel crying out as the voice in the wilderness and we see sinners repenting of their sins and being baptized. Then <clears throat> we see him pointing um, the people of Israel to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we see a direct connection between John and Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a hairy man who came out of the wilderness. He just appears on the scene when you read about him in the Old Testament. And John the Baptist comes on the scene in the same way. <clears throat> I say Ezekiel, I meant Elijah. Thank you very much. Thank the Lord. I'm very thankful that that didn't go on tape that way. Now, uh, Elijah... And uh, what we see, brethren, is a, is a clear connection because Elijah had to come first speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. Speaking of the one to come. And Christ from His own lips tells us that Elijah indeed did come. He was John. <clears throat> Verse 7, 
He preached, saying, There cometh one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I'm not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. This great one, this greater one, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes, unlatch his sandals. This great one is going to go far beyond what I'm able to do. I can immerse you in water. He will pour out and immerse you in the Holy Ghost. And then we have the glorious uh, witness to the Lord Jesus Christ going down to John, being baptized in Jordan, identifying with His people. And as He comes up out of the water, He saw the heavens opened and the Spirit like a dove descending upon Him. Of course, we understand in John's Gospel that he had been instructed, John the Baptist had been instructed that the one upon whom the Spirit came and rested was Messiah. So, John sees this great uh, event. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Heaven itself, God the Father, is pleased with the Lord Jesus Christ and bears witness to His greatness and to heavenly pleasure. Now, following this and this glorious anointing, the Lord Jesus Christ is driven by the Spirit into the wilderness. The Lord Jesus Christ is the true Israel of God. And while Israel stumbled over and over in the wilderness, the Lord Jesus Christ went into the wilderness and conquered all the temptations of the devil. He is the Anointed One, Messiah, the Christ, and He triumphs over Satan's temptations. Then after John was put into prison, then the Lord Jesus comes and He begins to preach the Gospel, the Gospel of the Kingdom. So you see how this unpacks, if you want to say it that way. The Old Covenant speaks of a glorious time when the Kingdom of God will be established and Messiah will come. And here we have the Lord Jesus Christ inaugurating that great and glorious time. In His baptism, He is the Anointed One of God. And He then as our Mediator, Prophet, Priest, and King, establishes the Kingdom in its early stage. And it will it is continuing to grow and will until its final consummation. So this is the background to what we want to say. We see that the Old Testament points forward that the Lord Jesus Christ fulfills and that He comes on the scene preaching this gospel of the kingdom. And what are the first words out of His mouth, or the first word out of His mouth, when He begins to preach? Well, the first thing He says is the time is fulfilled. The new covenant, the dawning of the new covenant is here. The kingdom is being inaugurated. The promises of God are coming to pass before your very eyes. Repent. Repent. It's almost an abrupt word at that point, is it not? The kingdom of God, the glories of His promises are, are fulfilled. So what does that call us to do? Repent. Repent. Repent ye and believe 
the Gospel. So, John the Baptist heralded the coming of Christ as the dawn of the new covenant appeared. And Jesus inaugurated the glories of God's kingdom and the fulfillment of the prophecies announcing the word repent. Christ's command to repent is our first thought and we want to understand the meaning of repentance. Having covered those for a number of weeks, I simply summarized this uh, in this fashion. Repentance is a theme found throughout the entire Word of God. And it is often expressed even when the Word itself is not used. The vocabulary of the Scripture is, is rich when it comes to the notion of repentance. There are two Hebrew words in the Old Testament and three Greek words in the New Testament that are often translated repent. Sometimes uh, <clears throat> other terms are used, turn, return. But when we take these words together, a picture begins to emerge. Unfortunately, uh, confusion sometimes arises regarding the meaning of repentance when its emotional aspect is overemphasized. Now, don't get lost here. What I mean by this is that we cannot rule out the emotional element of regret. There is regret in repentance. There is remorse. But unfortunately, throughout the history of the church, that seems to often have been the primary thought that the people of God have drawn out of the idea of repent. Just, re just remorse, regret, sorrow, grief. We must be very careful <clears throat> because the primary focus of the biblical writers is not the aspect of remorse, but the aspect of thinking differently. That's what they're going for. Thinking differently. When we survey the Old Testament and New Testament words and the way in which the biblical writers use them, the meaning of repentance that emerges is a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. A change of mind that leads to a change of lifestyle, which we said this morning. And brethren, this is what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying. Announcing the kingdom of God, He says, change your minds. He's not coming on the scenes and say, feel bad. He's not coming on the scene and saying, simply be filled with remorse. He's saying, something promised by God is dawning in my appearance. Change your minds. And that's vital. We want to consider the elements of repentance. I mentioned them briefly this morning, but we want to, lay, uh, want to look at them just for a few moments. If the preaching of the gospel of God's kingdom includes repentance, as it surely does, from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ, what does it mean for us? What does He want us to change our minds about? What is it about the, the advancing or the emerging kingdom of God 
that calls us to repent, that calls us to think differently, that causes us to change our minds. Well, first of all, there must be a change of mind about sin. This kingdom, this glorious kingdom, is a spiritual kingdom and it is a holy kingdom. Those that are its citizens must be holy. And this is exactly why the Lord Jesus Christ said to a Nicodemus, this is why that chapter should carry such weight with us. Because Jesus isn't saying to a prostitute. Jesus isn't saying to a, a drunkard lying in his vomit in the gutter. Unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. He's saying to a theologian, a religious man, a man who was filled with Scripture, a man who probably came to talk for hours with the Lord Jesus Christ about fine points of uh, theology. Jesus Christ looked at him and said, except a man be born again, he cannot see, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. It is holy. And yet we in our natural state are sinful, guilty, and corrupt. Man's carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can be. In other words, I want to do my thing, and I'm going to do it no matter what. And even if there are forces bigger than us that keep us from literally doing it on the outside, we'll do it on the inside. Children, you know very well there are times when your parents tell you to do something and in your heart and your mind, you don't want to do it. And you'd like to tell them, I don't want to do what you're telling me to do. But you know, if, if you do that, there are likely to be some consequences that will be very unpleasant for you. So you go and you grit your teeth and you do it. But inside, you grate and you grind against it. And you despise it because you want to live your own way. You're rebelling against the Most High God. Now, it doesn't matter whether we actually manifest it on the outside or whether it burns in our hearts. We have to change our minds about sin. We are in rebellion against God by our nature. As the Scripture tells us that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, separated from the Almighty and from His great mercy and grace, living under His condemnation, except we flee to the Savior. God's Word says that we all had our conversation or our lifestyle, our behavior, in times past in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And that's where it begins, in the mind. And we were by nature the children of wrath. And what that means is those worthy of God's just judgment. And such was the state of stiff-necked Israel when John the Baptist appeared as the first rays of the day spring. Well, they thought they were fine with God because they had the mark of circumcision, the covenant sign. <clears throat> they had the laws of God. They had the Sabbath. 
They had all of their religion, which God had ordained. He'd ordained all of these glorious uh, 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 laws that had to do with the tabernacle, or I should say the temple at that time, uh, the offerings and all of these things. God had ordained them, but they were empty because the people of Israel had no heart for them. They were a sinful and wicked people. And even, even its religious leaders looked good on the outside when they all looked at one another and compared one another. The religious leaders looked fine. But the Lord Jesus Christ said, you're like whited sepulchers. You're like a big grave with dead men's bones inside. The kingdom of God is holy. And men, even in their highest religious state, apart from the quickening influence of God's Spirit, are dead in their trespasses and sins. God sent His Holy Son, announced by John the Baptist. And as we see in these first 15 verses of Mark's Gospel, we have to reckon with the issue of sin. He doesn't, John doesn't come on the scene and say, well, now you're God's covenant people. So you don't really have anything to worry about. Just go on, be faithful, and everything's fine. And isn't what he said. He came out of the wilderness thundering and calling men to repent. To repent and be baptized. Over what? The remission of sins. The remission of sins. John is depicted as the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make His path straight. And it seems clear that the issue of preparing the Lord and making His path straight is directly tied to verse 4. <clears throat> it says, John did baptize. Make His path straight. You are sitting against God. You have made His glorious ways crooked. Now repent of your sins. Be baptized for the remission of your sins. This is straightening out God's path. Then in verse 5, we see the inhabitants of Jerusalem and Judea. They were baptized of Him in the river of Jordan. Doing what? Saying, we're not all that bad? No. He says, confessing their sins. Amen. They heard the voice of God in the commands of John the Baptist. Repent of your sins and believe on the coming one. He's greater than I am. I'm baptizing you with water. But He's going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost. So there must be a change of mind about sin. The young people, adults, all of us here, Sin is shameful. Sin is vile. Sin is corrupting. And God will judge it. In its smallest degrees, God will judge it. And you will either love your sins and remain in them, or you will change your mind. You will repent and look to Christ. The first thing that Christ means when He says, Repent, 
is to change your mind about sin. Secondly, is to change your mind about self. Until the Word and the Spirit of God make us know our guilt and our filthiness before a holy God, we will never change our minds about ourselves. As I said this morning, we can look at everyone else and point out their problems, but we're not so bad. But brethren, when we come to the Word of God, and it comes home to us, just like the law of covetousness came home and smote Paul in his heart. He said, I I didn't think I was a covetous man. And then the law of God came home. And it made me realize I was covetous. And then I realized because I was covetous, I was an idolater. And I saw myself sinful before God. Have you ever seen yourself sinful before God? Until you've changed your mind about yourself, you'll never truly believe that you need a Savior. When you know that left to yourself, you would go to hell, you'll begin to change your mind. You'll think differently about who you are. Until then, you'll go on your own way, or at least as much of your own way as you can possibly work out. And thirdly, there must be a change of mind about God. There must be a change of mind about God. When we repent, we have a new awareness of His holiness. That's why we'll repent in the first place. What the Spirit of God comes and makes us see in very clear terms is that He's holy. This is what the angels are saying about God at this moment. As I stand and preach before you in the glories of heaven, millions of angels, millions of them, are crying out, What? Mercy, mercy, mercy. Love, love, love. Grace, grace, grace. That's not what they're saying. They're saying, holy, holy, holy. He is holy. He's righteous and He's good. You know, people, that means He's separated from all that is wicked, all that is bad, all that is wrong. And He is set apart. He is separate unto all that is right and good and pure. And He will separate from Himself for all eternity those who die in their sins. If we begin to understand something about God, we'll have a different attitude toward His love, a different attitude toward His Lordship, and a different attitude about His Word. Can you see these things? When Christ says, Repent ye! He's saying, Change your mind about sin, which separates you from God. Self, which is that, 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 uh, that core of your being that loves itself and loves its own way has a higher opinion of itself than is warranted. And change your mind about God. You can't blow off His commandments. Well, you think you can, but you cannot. You you think you can ignore Him, that you can turn your back on Him, that you're going to go ahead and just live the way you want to live, and maybe someday when you get older, maybe you'll get religious. Well, that might just happen. When you get older, you might just get religious. But getting religious is not the same as being converted. 
Because Christ commands us to repent. You can join a church, get a nice big Bible. You can say all the creeds, speak all of the, the, the correct answers to the catechisms and be as lost as you can possibly be. Change of mind about God. Well, Christ also commands us to believe. That's the second thing. He not only commands us to repent, but to believe. And while faith is a word that we're a little more familiar with in our day than, than uh, repentance, uh, it too is still very little understood. The Lord Jesus says, Repent ye and believe. What's He calling Israel to do? What is He calling us to do? Well, the first thing that we must say about faith, and the saints here have heard me say this numerous times, and they'll hear it again this evening. Faith is not a feeling. You're not a Christian just because you feel like you're a Christian. We are Christians because we believe God. Believe His Gospel. Jesus said, Repent ye and believe the Gospel. Faith is the mental act of believing. And believing always has an object. Now, we often hear things in our day like, well, you know, we, don't, we don't believe a doctrine. We just believe on a person. We just believe on Jesus. But this is to divide what the Scripture does not. It is impossible to know which Jesus to believe apart from His doctrine. Second John tells us in the plainest language, He that transgresseth, He that transgresseth, and hath not the doctrine of Christ, hath not God. You must believe what Christ says. You must believe the Word of God to know the Son of God. You cannot see Him. You cannot hear Him. You cannot touch Him. You cannot smell Him. None of your senses will tell you where the Savior is as such. But the Word of God sets forth eternal truth and you must believe that truth. This is what Christ commands. Repent ye. Change your mind. Change your mind about your sin, yourself, and about God, and believe what God says. And that brings us to Christ's gospel. The word gospel means good news. It means glad tidings. So when the Lord Jesus says, Repent ye and believe the gospel, He was commanding men to change their minds and to believe information. To believe data. I know that's a modern word. But that's exactly what he's saying. We're to believe a report. We're to believe the testimony of heaven. We don't just believe. We believe something. The good news is a message directly from heaven. It is the divinely inspired propositions about the only Savior of sinners. Jesus Christ. He came into His own and His own received Him not. What does that mean? They didn't believe Him. They didn't believe what He was saying. 
They didn't believe the testimony from heaven. This is my son. They didn't believe the propositions that Christ set before them. I am He. If ye abide in My Word, then are ye My disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They didn't believe that. You must believe the truth. And there are four things we want to consider as we think of the content of the Gospel. Number one, the Gospel is a biblical message, a biblical and historical message about God. Today, we invariably start with man. Are you sad? Are you troubled? Would you like to be happy? Believe in Jesus. Having problems? Having difficulties? Life hard to bear? Believe in Jesus. But the Gospel of Scripture, the Gospel of the Kingdom, doesn't begin with men. Repent ye and believe the Gospel. But what does it say before that? He came preaching the Kingdom of God. The Gospel is a revelation of God. Preaching the Gospel includes telling men who God is, what He is like, what His law requires, and what His claims upon men are. Children, God made you. And even though God has given you mommy and daddy to raise you in the nurture and the admonition of the Most High, you're His. He's got a claim on you. And He's got a claim on all men because He made them. He is the Creator of all. He is the Sovereign of all. And He has told men what He expects of them. And we go our own way. Is that clear? Does that make sense? It's so important. The Gospel is a revelation about God. And until men see that they owe their existence to God, you didn't crawl up out of, a, out of the primordial soup when life began zillions of years ago and, and uh, soon uh, the one-celled creature became a two-celled creature and then finally hoisted itself up, crawled up on the land and became something ape-like and then finally a man and then got a college degree. You were made by Almighty God in His image. And this God calls you to repent and believe the Gospel. Until men see that they owe their existence to God and until they see that He is holy and that they are rebels against His righteous law and until they see that they have brought His just condemnation down upon their heads, they will never make sense of the Gospel. How many of you go to the doctor just because you get up one morning and decide to go to the doctor? Don't have anything else to do? Kind of boring today? Not a lot going on? Hmm. Think I'll go to the doctor. We don't do that. If you wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning and you've got a pain in your side that's so excruciating you can barely breathe, what do you want? You want a doctor. You don't want to just lie there in the bed and be still. Be quiet, it'll go away. You don't want to just know if it might go away. You want someone to help you. 
And friend, until you see that you are lost, you will never cry out for the Christ of Scripture. You never will. Until you understand this God is holy and has His demands upon you, you will never cry out for a Savior. You'll never believe the Gospel. It will never make sense to you. But when you realize that you are justly condemned for your sins because He is holy and you are wicked, you will want a Savior. Are there any wicked people here tonight? Are there any sinners here tonight? I don't have any good news for those of you that are in in good shape. But I have wonderful news for those who know what they are. The Gospel is a message about God, His claims, and what He's done to save men from their sins. Well, the second thing we want to consider is this issue of men and their sin. The Gospel is a biblical and historical message about men and their sin. Simply telling someone that God loves them does not bring them to understand that He will judge them. Well, what do we want to do? Today, we have a love gospel. Unfortunately, uh, far too influenced by the 60s, I'm afraid. Uh, It's kind of a flowery power gospel. We just want to walk around as if if the Lord Jesus Christ in some way or another were, were kind of just a bearded, sanded fellow who walked around and just talked about love. Well, I don't know how people get that that notion if they read and believe the Bible. What did Jesus say as He came upon the scene announcing the kingdom of God? God's kingdom is here. Repent. Believe the gospel. The gospel is not only the revelation of God, but it is a revelation of His judgment upon wicked, sinful men. until men recognize that they are wrong with God, they will never truly be concerned to be right with Him. The Word of God reveals that the hearts of men are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. And I especially want to say to the children, I grew up, my mother taking me to church. And there were times when I didn't want to be there. And when that fellow was up there talking, all I wanted him was, uh, all I wanted him to do was get done so I could go to lunch or so that I could go and think about things that were more pleasant. And very often when he would get loud, he would get red in the face as he was talking about something, as he would grow passionate, I would think, oh, why do they get up so upset about here? What's the big deal? I don't understand this. I mean, why do you want to come and sit and listen to someone just have the... Uh, is, voice crying out, sometimes breaking in emotion and veins bulging out of his neck. I'm not interested in this. Give me something else. Well, there are people that like to put on the show because they're entertainers. And that's what some preachers are. But there are some who have been saved from the depths of their sin. And what burns in their hearts is to say to you, children, and to say to you, adults, 
apart from Christ, you are eternally lost. And there is no more important issue in all of life. And we do grow passionate about that. Because apart from the Lord Jesus, we have no hope. Jesus Himself said, here's what's the problem with man. From within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders. And He goes on with a long list. Where does that come from? It doesn't come from the people I hang around with at school. It doesn't come around from the bad crowd in the neighborhood. It doesn't come because mommy and daddy didn't give me all the things that I wanted when I grew up. It comes out of your heart. Children, you know that no one had to teach you to lie. Isn't that right? You can look mom and dad right in the face and lie bold-faced to them. And you never took a class in lying, did you? How can you do that? Because that's your nature without Christ. Parents, you can go into a business deal, look right across the table at someone and lie through your teeth and boast later on about the business deal you've made. And you go in church and go, Amen. How can you do that? Unless you have a new heart. You'll always do that. In fact, there'll be times when you enjoy it and you'll boast in it. You'll boast in your shame. Men are lost because of their hearts, not because of their society. Jesus and the apostles did not hesitate to bring people face to face with their sins. Not only so, but we must express in the very clearest terms that sinners are utterly helpless in themselves to do anything to save themselves from God's just damnation. You can't do anything to fix it. How do we get right with God? Part of the good news is starting off with the bad news and saying, you can't fix it. Wait a minute. Can I, uh, can I be more serious about my catechism? Can I be more serious about uh, reading the Bible? How about if I pray more? If I pray more, will God accept me? No. Well, I'll go to church more. I'll go to church more. I'll, I'll be more respectful. I'll try to stop doing this and, and I'll try to stop doing that. I'll be the best that I possibly can. Will He take me then? No. You are lost in your sins. And you can't fix the problem because it's your heart. There's no button that you can push that makes it better. You say, well, what kind of good news is it that I can't do anything? The good news is that God has done it in Jesus Christ. He has done absolutely everything infinitely necessary to save and to keep His people. And Jesus announced it at the inauguration of His kingdom. Repent ye! Change your mind. Change your mind and believe the gospel. Believe the revelation of God. Believe the revelation of man. And thirdly, the gospel is a biblical historical message about Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is the incarnate Son of God. The God-man. He wasn't just a nice fellow. He wasn't just a teacher. He wasn't a good philosopher. He was the eternal Son of God made flesh to save His people from their sins. Mommy, Daddy, why did Jesus, why did God become man? Have your children ever asked? Have you ever told them? You see, sweetheart, God can't die. But a man can. God became man so that He could die upon the cross of Calvary bearing the sins of His people. Jesus is Messiah, the Anointed One, the Lamb of God, the Risen Savior, the Lord of Glory, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the Beginning and the End, the First and the Last. He is Eternal, Almighty God, become man. Do you believe that? That's the testimony we read just a little while ago. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Do you believe that? Do you trust Him? We must tell sinners who it was that died upon the cross for the Gospel to mean anything at all. People die every day. People die in a good cause. But the death of the Lord Jesus Christ changed all of history. When He was raised again, things were never the same. Because death and hell were conquered for all eternity. Because it was the God-man that died upon that lonely and cruel cross. What did Paul and Silas say to the Philippian jailer who wanted to know how to be saved, how to be right with God? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They offered before His hungry, crying soul an object for His faith. He didn't say, well, just feel. Get all excited and feel good about God. He said, believe on the resurrected Lord of glory. There's your hope. Today, many reduce the gospel to something like, well, God loves you and Jesus died for your sins. And if you believe this, you'll be saved. It is extraordinary, friend, but I, I, I set a challenge before you. Many of you probably already know this. But are you not aware... The Christ and the apostles never began a single recorded sermon that they have that way. They never started off by saying, Oh, God loves you. Smile, God loves you. They started off with the revelation of who God is. They talk about the sins of men. They bring forth the glories of the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, the love of God is important. I'm not diminishing it but you will never truly understand the love of God until you understand the depths of sin and until you understand God's hatred and wrath for sin. Then when you see Christ hanging upon the cross of Calvary as set forth in the Scripture and seen with the eye of faith, as you see that God took all of His wrath and poured it out upon His Holy Son then you see the love of God. When His wrath should fall upon you and plunge you into hell for eternity, in His mercy, He poured out His fury upon the God-man. 
His darling Son, Jesus Christ. Much of modern so-called evangelism simply focuses on Christ's death, and I'm not diminishing it. Oh, the death of Christ is central. But, oh, friends, if you read the book of Acts, one thing emerges over and over and over. They not only preached about a Christ who died on the cross, they preached a resurrected Savior. Not simply a dead Savior upon a cross, they preached a glorious, living, resurrected Lord. Amen. After His resurrection, this is what Jesus told His disciples to preach. Thus it is written, and thus it behoved Christ to suffer as His death and to rise from the dead the third day. What did Peter preach on Pentecost? Him ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. There's His death whom God raised up. He didn't stop with His dying upon the cross because our salvation isn't only in His death upon the cross, but in His glorious resurrection. Well, finally, the fourth thing to remember then is that the gospel is a biblical and historical message about repentance and faith. Remember where we started in Mark's prologue? When Jesus came on the scene preaching the glorious kingdom, He said, Repent ye and believe the gospel. Repent and believe. It is not only the declaration of God and His holiness and His righteous claims upon men. It is not only the message about man and his wickedness and his desperate need of a Savior. It is not only a message about the glorious Son of God who came, who was crucified and raised again. But it's a call to repent and believe that truth. Jesus described His own ministry this way. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. O come ye sinners, as we sing, come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus, ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. He is able. He is able. He is able. He is willing. Doubt no more. Repent and believe the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, if this is the case, brethren, if Jesus Christ came announcing this glorious kingdom with these words, repent and believe the gospel, and if the gospel is at least these four things, then we're not preaching the gospel when we say to people, oh, just give your heart to Jesus. That's not gospel preaching. We're not preaching the gospel when we say, well, let Jesus come into your heart. You don't know how to do that. It's not gospel preaching. We're not preaching when we say, well, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Christ never said that. The apostles never said that. Read the Gospels. Read the book of Acts and hear from Christ's lips how He calls men to Himself. And read how the apostles exalt Him and set Him before people. 
They don't set a buddy before people, a problem solver, a great psychologist, Santa Claus in the sky. They set a risen Savior before them. And they call them to repent and believe on Him. We're not preaching the Gospel when we say, well, God's done all He can do. Now the rest is up to you. I grew up hearing that. God's not sitting on His heavenly throne, twiddling His thumbs and waiting for somebody to believe Him. He knows good and well that none will left to themselves. He comes in His mercy and in His grace in His gospel. This is why Jesus said, Repent and believe the gospel. Believe that truth. We're not preaching the gospel when we say, well, ask Jesus to give you a new heart. Oh, you need a new heart. And it's true to say you must be born again, but even saying that is not preaching the gospel. That's not the declaration of the good news. That's telling man his lost condition, as Jesus was telling Nicodemus. You must be born again, Nicodemus, or you have no hope. How did Jesus finish what He was saying? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We're not preaching the Gospel when we say, well, now figure out if you're the elect. We're not preaching the Gospel when we say, well, here are the five points, believe the five points, and you're right with God. You are right with God when you as a needy sinner repent and believe the Gospel. Amen. We're certainly not preaching the Gospel when we say, as I've heard some who believe in God's sovereign grace, say, well, you can't believe on Jesus in and of yourself, so don't even try. He's just got to do it, so just sit there and wait. Brother, I've heard that. I've heard it come from men's lips. Well, you know, God chooses us, we don't choose Him, so, well, you know, one of these days you'll, you'll know if He's chosen you or not. You cannot tell men this. That is an abuse of the sovereignty of God. You don't tell sinners, well, don't believe. Uh, you, can't, you can't in and of yourself. Maybe someday you can if you get regenerated. Maybe here's a few signs that you are. No! The King of kings came announcing His kingdom. And He said, Repent ye and believe the gospel. Amen. We are not preaching the gospel when we say, Believe on the Lord Jesus and be circumcised as the Judaizers in Galatia did. Or believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Take the sacraments. Do good deeds. And you might be saved if you spend enough time in purgatory as Rome does. Or believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be baptized by us or you won't be saved. As some Pentecostals and some Church of Christ members do. Or... Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and speak in tongues or you won't be saved. Men can add on all their little appendages, but there's only one gospel. It is a message about God. It is a message about man and his sin. It is a message about the Lord Jesus Christ and what God in His grace has done 
to save sinners. And we must call men to repent of their sins and believe that. The kingdom of God is Christ's theme. And He calls men to it. We have heard His word. If you do not know Him, I urge you with all of my heart, flee to a willing Savior. Believe on Him. Change your mind and believe the Gospel unto everlasting life. Let's pray. O blessed and holy Father, come in Your mercy and grace. Seal these truths to our hearts. O Father, come to the lost and make them know the glories of a risen Savior. Whether they be the open and profane lost or the religious lost, O turn their eyes upon the risen Christ and may they repent of their sins and believe on Him unto everlasting life. And may you in all your glory receive all the praise for all eternity. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue Edmonton that's E D M O N T O N Alberta abbreviated capital A capital B Canada T six L three T five you may also request a free printed catalog and remember that John Calvin in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying His word, 
they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words then are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.